Well, there once was a guy named Joey, and Joey claimed to know everybody. He was playing golf with a buddy one day, and he said to his friend, he said, you know, the last time I played this course, I was playing with Tiger Woods. His friend said, no way. So Joey reaches in his pocket, pulls out his cell phone, punches in a number, hands it to his buddy. Who's on the other end of the line? Tiger Woods. Friend can't believe it. Well, sometime later, they're at a John Mayer concert together, and Joey turns to his buddy, and he says, you know, John Mayer and I, we went to high school together. We were like best buds. And his friend says, you got to be kidding me. Joey slips out of his seat, and he goes up, talks to a, a guard at the entrance to backstage, and the guard disappears and comes back out a few minutes later with John Mayer, who gives Joey this great big bear hug. So his friend's getting tired of this, and so finally one day he says to him, he says, I'll bet you don't know the Pope. Joey goes, the Pope? Like, I've had coffee with him at the Vatican. Yeah, know the Pope. His friend had had enough. He said, okay, I'm buying two tickets to Italy. And so they traveled to Italy where Joey's going to prove he knows the Pope. And they get to St. Peter's Square. Joey says to his buddy, you wait right here. Keep your eye on that balcony. In five minutes, I and the Pope, we're going to come out on the balcony. <laughs> his friend says, yeah, right. Five minutes later, who comes out on the balcony? Joey and the Pope. The guy's going to get the Pope. The Pope. He turns to a, a guy who's passing by through St. Peter's Square. He says, do you see who I see? Guy looks up and he says, well, I recognize Joey, but who's the dude with him? <laughs> see, last week you gave all this love to Michael Jr. Because he told some jokes. I thought it was Valentine's weekend. How about a little love? Not if you don't mean it. All right. Well, actually, there's a point to my joke. Uh, just like Joey claimed to know some really important people, many of us claim to know the most important person of all time, Jesus Christ. But do we really know him? Do we really know him? I'm not posing this question simply for those of you who are still uh, investigating the truth of Christianity, you're kicking the tires, you haven't yet surrendered to Christ. I'm posing this question as well to those of you who consider yourselves to be Christ followers. Do you really know the one you claim to follow? How well, how well do you know Jesus? Now, on one occasion, John 14, verse 9, Jesus is speaking to one of his disciples, a guy named Philip. Now, Philip had spent three years 24-7 with Jesus traveling together, living together, and yet Jesus turns to Philip in John 14, verse 9, and he asks, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Don't you know me, Philip? See, evidently, it's possible to kind of know Jesus in one sense, and yet not really know him in another sense. Do you really know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? Today, we're going to take a closer look at who Jesus is. If, if you're a skeptic or you're still exploring the faith, before you reject Jesus, I want you to know who the Jesus is you're rejecting. If you're a brand new Christ follower, maybe last weekend at our Wild Weekend, you put your trust in Christ and you picked up a Next Steps packet, I want you to know the one you've begun a relationship with. If you're a committed Christ follower, I want you to know the one who is your Savior, your King, this amazing Jesus Christ. So let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. In fact, if you've got a Bible, wave it in the air. 
Cell phone Bibles count, whatever. Let's see those Bibles. Good. We're going to be going through John 14, 15, 16, and 17, a 17-week series. You need a Bible. So bring one with you. If you don't have one, borrow one, buy one, steal one. God will forgive you, won't he? Steal a Bible? Yeah, don't steal it. Go ahead and buy one and bring it with you and mark it up as we go along. This seven-week series is going to lead us up to Good Friday and Easter. As you heard in our, our worship time, th this is the period of time on the church calendar, not, not, the, not the Christ Community Church calendar, the church capital C calendar called Lent. Just like Advent builds up to Christmas time, Lent builds up, it prepares us, prepares us for Good Friday and Easter. So you're not going to want to miss any of this series of John 14 through 17. Now, if you're open to those chapters, I want you to take a quick look at your Bible. This is not a, a trick question I'm going to ask, but what is the color of ink in John 14 through 17? Call it out. Red. What does red ink signify? Okay, these are Jesus' words. Bible publishers like to do that. Give us Jesus' words in red ink. Now, that means that everything we're going to study is one long life lesson that Jesus taught. It's a discourse of Jesus that some Bible scholars refer to as the Last Supper discourse because it was taught at the Last Supper, Jesus teaching his closest followers, his 12 disciples. This is the night he teaches this material, the same night that he is later betrayed and arrested, and the next day, He's tried, convicted, and executed. So this is really, really important stuff. Now let me give you a little bit of, of background to the, uh, to the Last Supper. The disciples who are meeting with Jesus for this meal, they're huddled in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem. Uh, many people believe, according to tradition, that this was a house owned by a guy named Mark. Mark was not one of the people there. He was not an original disciple, but he was good friends with a disciple named Peter. He learned everything Peter knew about Jesus and later wrote a biography of Jesus based upon Peter's recollections called the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, the Gospel of Mark. So this may have been Mark's home. And they're, they're, they're meeting somewhat secretively because Jesus knows the religious leaders of the day are seeking to arrest and kill him. Jerusalem is bustling with traffic. It's the celebration, the annual celebration of Passover. An estimated 200,000 additional people are in town for this celebration. And the, 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 the event that they're commemorating goes back like 1,400 years, 1,400 B.C., when Moses delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt and led them to the Promised Land. A little, a little bit of backstory. Some of you are familiar with this story. You've read it in your Bible. Or you just saw Christian Bale play Moses in Exodus, right? He's no Charlton Heston, let me tell you. But if you, you saw the movie, movie or you've read it, you know that Pharaoh needed some convincing to let God's people go. And so God sent 10 plagues, took 10 plagues to convince the Egyptians to say, enough, okay, out of here. The 10th plague was the worst of all. The angel of death was set loose, and he killed the firstborn child in every Egyptian home. God's people, however, were spared because they had been instructed, each of them, each family, to kill a little lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of the home. When the angel of death saw the blood, he passed over that home, which is how we get Passover. 
Now, friends, I, I don't want you to miss the significance of the timing here. Jesus is about to die on a cross, is about to shed his blood, and it happens during Passover celebration. How, how is Jesus' blood going to rescue people from death, just like the lamb's blood rescued them from death centuries earlier? I've told you this before, death is the penalty for sin. So if you sin, if you disobey God, if you disconnect from the source of life, you die. The wages of sin is death, what the Bible says. So God puts together a rescue plan. He sends the world his son who goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay death, to take death in our place and offer to all who surrender their lives to him forgiveness and eternal life. See, Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Let me give you a few more facts concerning this Last Supper. And then we're going to jump into John 14. It was at the Last Supper that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Remember that event? They all come to the, uh, the meal Having trudged through the dirty streets of Jerusalem, their feet are filthy. There's no servant on hand who would typically have washed their feet. Nobody's going to wash anybody else's feet until Jesus gets up from the table, takes a basin and a towel and washes each disciple's feet and then teaches them a lesson on the importance of serving others. Well, that happened at the Last Supper. It's at the Last Supper that Jesus predicts that Judas is going to betray him and Peter is going to disown him three times before the night's out. That was at the Last Supper. It's at the Last Supper that Jesus institutes a celebration we know today as communion. He takes bread, he breaks it, he passes it around, he takes a cup, he sips it, passes it around. He says, this is my body, this is my blood given for you. And then he asks his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And so we've been doing it for 2,000 years. We do it once a month at Christ Community Church. We celebrate communion because of what Jesus taught at the Last Supper. It's at the Last Supper that Jesus spends an extended period of time praying for his disciples. Not only for them, Jesus prays in this extended prayer for every follower of his down through the centuries. So if you know Christ today, if you're a follower of Jesus, he prayed for you at the Last Supper. Think about that. And it's at the Last Supper that Jesus prepares his followers for the inevitability of living in a hostile world which is why we're calling this series Dinner in a Hostile World. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that the world can be a difficult place in which to live, especially if you choose to identify with Jesus, if you choose to walk in obedience to Jesus, if you choose to live by Jesus' values and priorities and morals and so on. Dinner in a Hostile World. That's kind of the background, the historical context of the Last Supper. I want to take a look at the first passage in this series, beginning in John 14, verse 1. And I want to go back to the question I posed earlier. Do you really know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? Today we're going to look at three things about Jesus that he identifies about himself in the key verse of the text, which is John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we're going to dig deeper into what is meant by each of those expressions, beginning, number one, 
with Jesus is the way to God. Let me start reading the passage to you. Follow along in your Bible. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Stop there for a moment because there's just an interesting side note here. The word rooms in verse 2, my Father's house has many rooms. When the Bible was being translated in the 4th century by a guy named Jerome, he was translating from the Greek into the Latin, a version called the Vulgate. When he got to this word rooms, my father's house has many rooms, he used the Latin word mansiones. Now just file that away for a minute, mansiones. Fast forward to the 1600s when King James gets together a group of Bible scholars to put the Bible into English. And when they get to verse 2 of John 14 and they're trying to choose a word to translate rooms, they look at the Latin Vulgate, mansiones, and they come up with mansions. And so from the 1600s to the 1900s, it's been popular for Christ followers to envision the day when they're going to get their own mansion. Only that's not what Jesus is emphasizing here. You know, his emphasis is not on the size of the piece of real estate you're going to get one day in the eternal presence of God. His emphasis is on the presence of God itself. You're going to have a room in God's house. You're going to live under God's roof. There's going to be this intimate fellowship with God Almighty. And then Jesus goes on to tell how you get there, how you experience this. Verse 3 He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back, I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's stop there. Jesus picks up on the fact that his disciples are unsettled. Verse 1 says, their hearts were troubled. What are they troubled about? Well, he's been hinting that he's going to leave them. You know, they're going to lose their best friend. They're going to lose their fearless leader, their mentor. They're upset. Jesus picks up on it. And in spite of what he's about to face on the cross, he's so empathetic, he wants to ally their fears. And he says, guys, I want you to know while I'm going to be gone for a short period of time, I'm going to come back. We're going to be together for all eternity. I'm preparing a place. And then he adds, and and you know how to get there. Well, Thomas is stupefied. (laughs) What in the world is Jesus talking about? He has no idea where this place is that Jesus says he has in store for them, which means Thomas has no idea how to get there. It's like using a GPS, right? In order for the GPS to tell you how to get someplace, you have to plug in the destination. If you don't know where you're going, the GPS can't tell you how to get there. So Thomas demands, how can we know the way? To which Jesus responds, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me note two important truths about Jesus' response here, that he's the way to God. First truth is this, Jesus does not merely show us the way to God, Jesus is the way to God. See the difference? Jesus doesn't just show us the way to God, Jesus is the way to God. Maybe an analogy would help here. I love to shop at Home Depot. 
Okay, because if, if I go into a typical store and I say, hey, I'm looking for a new shower nozzle, they'll say to me, well, you know, walk down this aisle, and when you get to the second to last row, you see the big power tool sign, take a right there, go down, a, you know, a couple of aisles, and then you'll see bathroom fixtures on your left, and I think it's about the third shelf down, you know, two from the top, you'll see shower nozzles, I think. Okay, if I go into Home Depot and say, where do I find a new shower nozzle, what do they say to me? You've never been to Home Depot, huh? Yeah, they say, I'll take you there. And they take me to the shower nozzle. That person does not show me the way. That person is the way. Christianity is not like any other religion, friends. Every other major world religion attempts to show you the way to God. You do this, you do this, you do this, and maybe you'll end up in God's eternal presence. Jesus says, I am the way to God. Put your whole hope and trust in me. Surrender your life to me. I'll take you there. How does Jesus do that? How does he get us to God? Well, the principal thing Jesus does is he removes the barrier that stands between God and us. See, there is an impenetrable wall that stands between God and us, which keeps us from having a relationship with God in this world. And it will keep us from experiencing God's eternal presence in the world to come. What is that barrier? If you know it, call it out. Sin. The barrier is sin. And in Old Testament times, it was symbolized by the curtain in the temple. Now, the curtain in the temple, very thick curtain, shut off a little room called the most holy place. What was in the most holy place? Okay, besides the Ark of the Covenant, the gold-plated box in which were the Ten Commandments, you know, in In the most holy place was the undiluted presence of God, which is why the curtain, nobody, no sinful person, which means nobody, goes into the most holy place. I mean, it would be like taking a speck of bacteria and putting it in a Petri dish of super-concentrated, high-powered antibiotic. That little bit of bacteria would be obliterated. You don't go into the undiluted presence of God except the high priest. But he, he was only allowed in one time a year on what was called the Day of Atonement, and he had to come carrying blood, the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed. Why blood? Well, because blood was symbolic of a life, and in Old Testament times, God demanded the life of sinful people. You unplug from the giver of life, you die. But he was willing to accept a substitute, the death of an animal in place of the death of a sinful person. And so when the high priest went into the most holy place, he was carrying blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people he represented. Jesus dies on the cross. He sheds his blood. All who put their hope and trust in him can be forgiven and delivered from death. They gain access into the presence of an awesomely holy God. They come in without fear, with confidence. In fact, as Jesus is dying on the cross, what happens to the curtain in the temple? If you know, call it out. It's torn in two, mysteriously torn in two, as if to say, access to God, now open to all who put their hope and trust in Christ. You know, I I love the way 
that the New Testament writer of Hebrews puts this. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, he's not talking about the place of the temple now, he's talking about the presence of God. Since we have confidence to enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, W-A, what way? Jesus is the way, open for us through the curtain, that is, through his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's speaking of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Jesus is the way to God. Through his body, torn on the cross, we have access to the presence of almighty, holy God. You go back to John 14, I told you that Jesus' response to Thomas in verse 6 contains two truths about Jesus' identity as the way to God. First truth being, he doesn't merely show the way, he is the way. The second truth being this, he is not only the way, he is the only way. Second half of verse 6, Jesus declares, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty exclusive claim. The reason it's true is because nobody else in human history has ever done what Jesus did. Jesus paid the penalty for sins. See, if you're a sinner, and I'm pretty sure you all are, and if God is righteous and just, and I'm absolutely certain he is, then somebody's got to pay for your sins. Now, if you choose to pay for them yourself, just keep in mind the penalty is eternal death. Is that what you want? The alternative is you could find a substitute, you could find someone to stand in for you, but just keep in mind if you find a substitute, it's got to be somebody who's perfect, because if they're not perfect, then when they die, they'll actually be paying for their own sins demanded of them, their death. They can't be paying for yours. So where are you going to find a willing perfect substitute. There's no one out there but Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior. If you have any thought that someday you'll stand in the presence of God for all eternity, some other way than through Jesus, please think again. And if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, surrender to him today. You know, around Christ Community Church, there's a, a couple of real simple ways to do that. One is just go back to the Welcome Center after a service at Christ Community today or any weekend and say, I want to surrender to Christ. Happens all the time in our Welcome Center. Happened big time last weekend whenever we do a WOW weekend. We'll give you a next steps packet so you'll take your first steps. Someone will pray you through surrendering to Christ to give you a next steps packet. By the way, the next steps packet goes with a next steps class. This is something new we're doing. Every four weeks, we start the same class over again here in St. Charles. I'm not sure how often it'll happen at the other campuses, but if you're at Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, check it out. Okay, it's four, four weeks worth of stuff you need to now begin this relationship with Christ. And it begins at the 11 o'clock hour in St. Charles today. So you're missing it, but you could jump in next week and go through the four weeks. Start over. 
Another simple way you can surrender to Christ is to pick up one of those God's Good News, God's Good News booklets available at the information counter. Read it through. It reiterates everything I've just said to you. And it closes with a prayer you could pray, surrendering your life to Christ who is the only way to God. He's the way. Now back to John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way. And then what? The the truth. Okay, Jesus is not only the way to God, he's the truth about God. Take a look at the passage again. We left off at verse 6. Pick it up at verse 7. Jesus says, if you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, uh, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father, that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Stop there. Jesus opens verse 7 with an amazing claim. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. Philip is confused by Jesus' statement, and he says, well, you know, then show us the Father. Show us God. That's all we're asking. This reminds me of another person who demanded to see God. Back in Old Testament times, Moses little of the backstory here. Moses has delivered God's people from bondage in Egypt. They're traveling through the wilderness to the promised land. God's people are a royal pain in the neck. I mean, they're constantly complaining. They're constantly rebelling against Moses' leadership until finally he can't take it anymore. He goes to God and he says, enough. I mean, get somebody else to do the job. How do you expect me to lead these people? God's response, Exodus 33, is because I will be with you. And Moses replies to God, and this is my paraphrase of Exodus 33, you will be with me? Like, how do I know that? I can't even see you. If, if you want to believe that you, me to believe that you are with me, that your presence is with me, then show me your glory. God says, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to put you behind a rock here. Because okay, there's about to be a nuclear explosion. And then I'm going to let my glory pass by. And I'm going to give you a peek. After it's passed by, I'm going to give you a peek at the backside of my glory. That's all you could take. So when Moses demands, show me your presence, God. That's what God does for Moses. Now when Philip asks, show me the Father. Jesus responds. You're looking at him. Have I been with you such a long time, Philip, and you, you don't realize who it is that's talking to you? You know, this is why C.S. Lewis, a writer, famous writer in the last century, former atheist, become Christ follower. He said, you, you cannot dismiss Jesus as being just a great moral teacher, but not the Son of God. Because when he said things like, like this, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's either a liar a lunatic, or Lord God Almighty. If he knows this is not the truth, but he's saying it, 
You're looking at me, you're looking at the Father. If he knows it, it, it to be not the truth, but he says it, he's a liar. If it's not the truth and he doesn't know it, then he's deluded. He's a lunatic. And the only other option is it is true and he's Lord of all. By the way, this is not an isolated statement in the Gospel of John. All through this biography of Jesus, John points to Jesus as God. Very first chapter, first verse, John 1.1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, which is a name that John gives Jesus here, capital W. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Later on in the same chapter, chapter 1, verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Later on in the biography, as John recounts Jesus' miracles, he calls them signs. Why does he use the word signs to describe Jesus' miracles? Because a sign points to something. What did Jesus' miracle signs point to? They point to his true identity as God. Who but God could do what Jesus is doing? In fact, even in the verses I read to you a moment ago, verse, verse 11, Jesus says to Philip, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. In other words, Philip, just look at what I'm doing. It's stuff only God could do. Jesus is the truth about God. If you, you want to know what God is like, get to know Jesus. Now, years ago, when I was a high school student, I had a good buddy named Jeff. It was back in the 70s, the hippie era, and uh, shortly after the Beatles disbanded. But, but by that time, they had introduced my generation to Eastern religions. So my buddy Jeff announces to me in the high school cafeteria one day that he's become a Buddhist. And I said, a Buddhist? I don't know what Buddhists believe. And, and, and so I said, what, what is God like in this new faith of yours? He said, well, I, I can describe it to you. And I said, go for it. He said, I want you to hold out your hands like this. And I'm thinking, this is a high school cafeteria. This is a place where you don't want to look ridiculous. So I'm looking around for my friends. Don't spot anybody. So, okay, go ahead. I'm holding out my hands, and he begins to rip his napkin up into little pieces and drop it in my hand, hands until my hands are full, to overflowing with napkin bits. And then, then he says to me, eye, eye to eye, he said, you want to know what God is like? I said, I want to know what God is like. And he leaned down and he went, like that. And the little napkin bits flew into the air and began to descend on us like snow. And I'm thinking, I will never eat in the cafeteria again. <laughs> Now, to this day, I have no idea what Jeff was trying to say. None. I mean, somebody help me out here. Napkin bits. This is, if somebody asks me, what is God like? I tell them about Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Let me introduce you to Jesus. Jesus is the truth about God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. Jesus is the truth about God. That's why I'm always recommending, if you're a brand new Bible reader, like if, if you'd like to 
break the binding on a Bible and begin to read it. Start with the Gospel of Mark. We actually put a, if you pick up a Next Steps packet here, we put a bookmark in the Gospel of Mark because it's one of the four biographies of Jesus. It's the shortest one, so you can get, get through it in no time at all. Read a chapter a day, you'll be through it in two weeks' time. The better you get to know God, the better you know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. I say this, not simply for those who are new believers. You know, every seasoned Christ follower should focus on getting to know Jesus better and better and better. You read the Bible not, not just to get to know the Bible, you read the Bible to get to know Christ. You know, it grieves Jesus when we don't have an interest, don't have a driving passion to know him better. Go back to Jesus exchange with Philip in John 14 verse 8 Jesus Philip says to Jesus Lord show us the father that'll be enough for us I want you to hear the sadness in Jesus response to Philip verse 9 don't you know me Philip even after I've been around among you such a long time Jesus is sad that Philip doesn't know him any better than he does let that sink in for a moment if you've known Jesus for three years, five years, ten years or more, would he say to you with sadness today, don't you know me any better after I've been with you such a long time? Is Jesus saddened or is he gladdened by the effort you're putting forth to get to know him better these days? We make a huge effort to get to know other people. You track your friends on Facebook because you want to know what's going on in their lives. You want to know everything about them. If you're in sales, you, you do research on a potential customer so you can close the deal. If you play fantasy football, you look at all the players you can add to your team. You want to know who they are before you add them to your lineup. If you're engaged and you're getting married, you're doing everything you can to get to know the family of your fiancé. And Jesus says, how badly do you want to know me? What kind of effort are you exerting to get to know me? The truth about God, you'll find it in Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, and finally he is the life. Number three, Jesus is the life of God. Now life is a key word in the gospel of John. Where does life come from? It comes from Jesus. I mean, li listen to these words from the uh, opening paragraph of John's gospel. This is John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. John says, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus made everything. He's the source of life. And that's not just something John says about Jesus. It's something Jesus says about Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus has life in himself, which he can impart to those who surrender their lives to him. Real life. You keep reading, you come to the 11th chapter 
of John's gospel and Jesus is standing at the graveside of his deceased friend Lazarus who's, who, who, who he's about to raise from the dead. But before he does this resurrection, Jesus says, John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the life of God. Now, here's the cool thing about the life that Jesus is the source of, the life that Jesus wants to give you. Even though it's referred to in John's gospel and in other parts of the Bible as eternal life, you don't have to wait until your earthly life is over in order to get it. See, eternal life begins the moment you surrender your life to Christ. If you've become a follower of Jesus by having surrendered to him, the life of God has come to live on the inside. It begins to transform you. It begins to empower you. So eternal life is not just a quantity of life. Oh, I get it. I'll go on living forever and ever and ever. It's a quantity of life, but it's also a quality of life. The life of God in you. Now, that brings us back to John 14. I want to look at the closing verses of today's passage, verses 12 through 14. The word life does not appear in these verses. Jesus said back in verse 6 that he is the life. But these verses describe what happens to a person who has surrendered to Jesus and the life of God has come on the inside. I want you to take a look at what this person now has the power to do. This could be you. Maybe this is you that Jesus is describing here if you're a follower of his. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. What does Jesus mean when he says, middle of verse 12, that the person who believes in him will do even greater things than what Jesus has done? What does this mean? Three popular interpretations out there. I think only one of them makes really good sense. Okay, one interpretation is, and people who are into miracles especially like this one, and Jesus is saying one day his followers will do even bigger and better, more amazing miracles than he did while upon the earth. I say, really? Jesus walked on water. Jesus said to a storm at sea, quiet, and the whole thing stilled immediately. Jesus took a little boy's lunch and he fed over 5,000 people with that sack lunch. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. How many Christ followers do you know have done those kinds of miracles? Even in cases where you see miracles outbreaking among believers, and I believe in miracles, you know, bigger and better than what Jesus did, hard to imagine. Okay, second possibility. Some say, well, you know, the word greater here just means more. See, we'll do more miracles than what Jesus did. And when you stop and think of it, this, this makes some sense. Because there have been 2,000 years of people following Christ and they've prayed for all sorts of miracles in their lives and God has granted them. They've seen people healed. They've seen broken marriages restored. If you add up all the miracles of all the Christ followers through all the ages, you could say we've accomplished more than Jesus did in his three years of earthly ministry. 
But Bible scholars say, wait a second, if Jesus wanted to say more, he would have said more. There were words he could have used that meant more, but he chose a word that means greater. Greater things than what I've done. So there's a third interpretation. A little harder to follow, but this will transform your life. Keep in mind that Jesus made this statement before his cross, before he died to pay sin's penalty, before he was resurrected from the dead. Up to that point in time, he'd done lots of miracles, but they were all for people in the here and now. They were short-lived. Yeah, he raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus eventually died again, right? But once Jesus had given his life on the cross, paid sin's penalty, risen from the dead, he could now offer people eternal life, the life of God on the inside. This is bigger and better than anything he ever did during his earthly ministry. And he does it, he extends this message now through his followers, which means you can participate in miracles like these. Stop and think about that. You know, last weekend at Christ Community Church, as I'm telling you this, I'm going to ask our, our worship teams to come out on the four platforms of our church. We're going to sing a closing song about Jesus and collect our gifts because our great Savior and King deserves our gifts. That's why you're offering in just a moment. But last Saturday and Sunday, we had a wow weekend at Christ Community Church. And I, I don't know if you brought a friend with you. Evidently, a lot of you did because every one of our auditoriums was filled across four campuses. St. Charles was packed. Michael Jr. was hilarious. And his story of what Christ had done in his life was so poignant. And then we came to the end of the interview with him, and he got up and he told by way of analogy, how every one of us is a house. If we want Jesus on the inside of the house to clean up the mess. We got to invite him to come in. And, and then he stepped down and I got up and said, here's how you get Jesus on the inside of your house. And I explained what the Bible calls the gospel, who Jesus is, what, what he did on the cross for you and why, how you come to surrender your life to Christ, what you pray to let him know this is what you want. And, and then we closed in a song, and I said, everybody who's prayed a prayer is saying, today I surrender to Christ. I want you to slip out of your seat and go to the Welcome Center of your campus and pick up a Next Steps packet. And last weekend, 137 people picked up Next Steps packets. And the reason I tell you this is because that's a greater miracle than anything Jesus did in his earthly life. Friend, that's a greater miracle. The life of God came to live on the inside. I mean, if you could go into your school tomorrow and you could take a sack lunch from a friend in the cafeteria and feed everybody in the room with that lunch, it would be a smaller miracle than if, if you could introduce one of your high school friends to Jesus. If you could go to work and you could walk over to a friend sitting in a wheelchair and pray over them and they'd be healed and stand to their feet, it would not be as great a miracle as if you talked about Jesus and your friend came to surrender to him and their eternal destiny was changed. You want to be part of a miracle? And you need to start talking about Jesus. Find ways to work him into conversation. 
want to be part of a miracle, want to set it up, then you need to start loving people, serving people in Jesus' name. Whether it's your neighbors or extended family members, it's people at work, it's at school, you serve them and then tell them, I'm doing that because I just want you to know Jesus' love for you. You start inviting your friends to places where they're going to hear the good news about Jesus. You invite them to a weekend service at Christ Community Church. You invite them to a second Saturday if they enjoy serving the poor because you know in addition to serving the poor, they're going to be rubbing elbows with your Christ-following friends. They're going to hear about Jesus. You invite them to your community group or to Awana. had a guy call me yesterday, a buddy, and he said, I just had to talk to you, tell you this. One of my friends at work has agreed to come to my community group, has no idea about who Jesus is, wants to learn. That's the beginning of a miracle. Would you pray with me? When I'm done praying, our worship teams at our campuses are going to lead you in one arousing song about Jesus as we collect our gifts. Lord God, we bow before your Son who is the way. There is no other way to you. He is the torn curtain. By his body hung on a cross, he's opened the way, access into your holy presence. May those who've never surrendered to you, do that today. He is the truth. He's the truth about who you are, God. Give us a passion to know you so much, so much so that we'll be motivated to learn everything we can about Jesus. And he is the life. Many of the people in this room and across four campuses of Christ Community Church, we are exhibit A. We are living proof that the life of God has come on the inside. We can say, yes, I've experienced it. I can vouch for it. Jesus is the life. And so we pray that you would receive from us our adoration, our gifts as we bring our gifts to you, and that we would go from this place today determined to bring the miracle of new life to others. We pray in your name. Amen.